I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. If you're a person of color, especially if you're black, you know that some of the worst people to deal with when it comes to race are white progressives. They're so woke they can't see their own blind spots. And when they're held accountable for the racist things they say or do, or even if those blind spots are pointed out to them, they lose their minds. According to Robin DiAngelo, here's why. Arrogance, lack of humility, denial. Uh, The more deeply invested I am in an identity of not being racist, the more uh, resistant I'm going to be to any feedback to the contrary. D'Angelo, author of the New York Times bestseller White Fragility, comes back to the podcast to talk about her new book, Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm. Listen to D'Angelo explain how silence, niceness, and even smiling are all part of the problem right now. Robin D'Angelo, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be with you again. Okay, so we talked a year ago, uh, a little bit, just a month or so more than a year ago, and probably the most memorable moment came at the very end when you made me cry. Um, (laughs) It totally took me by surprise. But, you know, it came, it hit at this time um, when I think it was just before the killing of George Floyd. Yes. And, you know, I was already dealing with uh, just a lot of stuff. So to have a white person just out of nowhere apologize to me for racism was just more than my my heart could bear in that moment. But you are back because you have what I'm calling part two of your first book, which is White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Your new book is Nice Racism how progressive white people perpetuate racial harm. And I remember in our conversation about white fragility, how I think I also thanked you for putting, just making a point of talking about white progressives and just how, and I so agree being a black person and my black friends and I have talked about this, how white progressives Mm -hmm. can be some of the worst people we have to deal with. Why did you feel it was important to, and and you write about white progressives in White Fragility, why did you feel it was important to put the focus, the laser beam focus on white progressives in in nice racism? Well, maybe for two reasons. One, white progressives are my people. (laughs) I am a huge white progressive uh, and that's who I'm around all the time. Uh, and, and I think that the patterns and the forms of resistance that you see uh, from people we would not call white progressives um, are pretty easy, easy to see, pretty explicit. I think it's harder to put your hands on the ways that folks like me enact racism. And I always say uh, white people need to change the question from if I've been shaped by the forces of racism to how have I been shaped uh, most of us think about it as a as an either or proposition. No, I've been completely unaffected by all the racist ideology that's been circulating from the moment of my birth. So if if that's how you look at it, then your answer to the question if you've been shaped doesn't require any further uh, engagement or work. It's not your issue. You know, you're already arrived. You know what you need to know, and let's point the finger at everybody else, right? Um, and 
it, it's one of the more provocative things I say in white fragility. And it's one of the things I get asked about a lot. So let's go deeper. Let's unpack it. We've established that racism exists um, in white fragility. And if you if you're with me at that point, um, then that's that's who I'm kind of calling in, if you will, with this next book. You know, you make a point of sort of saying, and also, if you've not read Robin's first book or you're just coming into all of this, the power uh, in Robin's both books is that she is a white woman writing to white people about race and racism. So you need to understand that and know that. Now, in Nice Racism, you make a point of talking about sort of the individualism, I call it the individualism escape hatch. Yes. <laughs> and it, talk about that and how that makes it possible for white people to put at arm's length who they think the true racists are, i.e. KKK, white nationalists marching on Charlottesville, and how that arm's length makes it possible to escape their own role in perpetuating racism. I call it the precious ideology of individualism. <laughs> and that <laughs> chapter is titled, Why It's Okay to Generalize About White People. That was something else I felt I had to take on right away, that I didn't address it in enough depth in white fragility. And so it's probably the number one thing that causes white fragility meltdowns. <laughs> uh, as somebody once said, white fragility prevents discussion of white fragility. Um but it's the idea that each of us is separate and unique and special. And if you don't know me, you couldn't know anything about me. You couldn't make any overall claims about me. Um, and what that does is allow me to say, I'm different from everyone else. I have not been affected by the ideology that, that circulates around me. Um, and here's all of the ways that I'm different, which leads into the, the ways that white people credential ourselves. Um, which are actually quite ridiculous. Well, I'm sure you and I are going to get to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And let me just be clear. Of course, I don't know the people listening right now. Uh, and of course, we are individuals and we are each different and unique. And we are also members of social groups that are so significant that we could literally predict whether you and your mother and me and my mother, whether we were going to survive our births. We can predict how long we're going to live. We can predict where a toxic waste dump will be located based on the, that racial membership. It's significant. And um, none of us can be exempt from the, the messages uh, of, you know, and the meaning ascribed to those groups. So we have to be willing to also grapple with the shared experience. We're swimming in the same cultural water. I mean, the irony is that individualism wouldn't be important to us if we didn't live in Western cultures that value individualism, right? So, so even that discourse is, is in part demonstrates the shared conditioning. One of the ways people can be special and unique within this conversation is if the question's is changed from if I'm racist to how am I racist? And that's a question I offer all white people. Then how are you do? How do you do it? 
you might do it differently than I do. Uh, you might have learned um, your place in the racial hierarchy from a different class position than I learned mine, but, but we all learned it. So it's on each of us to, to unpack that. And I don't think anyone would argue with the fact that the moment you are born and they declare male or female, <laughs> the forces of socialization are set in play. Let's be honest, they're set in play before you're born if there's an ultrasound and we know what sex you're, you're you know, going to be assigned. And you can't avoid, the blanket they wrap you in will be based on whatever that assignment is. And you can resist it, but you are going to have to respond to it. There is no one who can be exempt from gender socialization. And, and I don't think people would argue with that. But racial socialization? Oh, absolutely not. Completely untouched. It is incredible. And you you write about how this individual individualism and the exemption that white people give themselves. Um, you write in the book, while most white people rarely interact with black people in any sustained way, black people must interact daily with white people who control many aspects of their lives. And I was looking for this other quote that you have in here to sort of make the even bigger point that Black people, we don't interact with Klansmen and white nationalists on a daily basis, uh, if ever, if we can help it. Yep. But who we do deal with on a daily basis um, are white people, and particularly white people who view themselves as progressives, and how that's why they are the most bothersome to black people when it comes to just navigating our daily lives. Why, why do you think white people, white progressives cannot see that? Uh, I'm just going to say it. Arrogance, lack of humility, uh, denial. Uh, the more deeply invested I am in an identity of not being racist, the more uh, resistant I'm going to be to any feedback to the contrary. Uh, so that, that can make us very difficult. But be, because of the fact that most white people live segregated lives, and a, upwards of 75% of us do, Chris Rock, I just saw a joke he made, which is, um, I'm everybody's one black friend, right? <laughs> um, we are, we're uninformed on this topic. Um, I walk, I walk my readers through a series of reflection questions, right? How racially diverse was your neighborhood growing up? How, how about your schools? How about your teachers? Did you study systemic racism in college? Uh, and I'm not talking about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King once, you know, once a year. Did you study systemic racism, the foundation of this country? How many black professors did you have? Uh, show me your wedding album. You know, you had a black roommate in college. Let me see your wedding album. Uh, <laughs> you know, to really see how diverse your life is. So we are uh, uninformed on arguably the most complex social issue of the last several hundred years. And yet we feel we know all we need to know. You know, I marched in the 60s, you know, back, back, you know, 60 years ago before we even knew that race wasn't biological. Uh, and by the way, I didn't march in the 60s. I was too young. But um <laughs> But th like that is often offered up as evidence as right. if, you know, this one act I did 60 years ago certifies me for the rest of my life. 
Um, and as if there wasn't anything going on, you know, when people were marching in the 60s. Uh, I can't help but draw parallels to gender because that's a place where I swim against the current and, and can access some of these dynamics and, and help make sense of them. Harvey Weinstein was married to a woman. He had pretty close proximity to a female. Did that free him of sexism? <laughs> Did that mean he couldn't enact sexism and misogyny? Uh, no. You have a chapter entitled, There Is No Choir. And what I would love for you to explain, you do these workshops and you've been doing these things, these workshops for a couple decades now. Yes. So you know the patterns of resistance that you are about to meet when you do these um, do your workshops. And you write that um, when someone says to you before our session begins, oh, you know, you're preaching to the choir. Mm -hmm. Why is that an early red flag to you about <laughs> what you're about to get into? Oh, I could, I could ask you, um, Jonathan, you're in, you're in media, you're on um, what we might call progressive, you know, forums, you're not on Fox News. Uh, so therefore, you, you work day in and day out with the white choir, right? You don't go home <laughs> exhausted in any way. Um, oh, no, not, never. <laughs> uh, that right there, um, you know, would tell me that there's some denial going on. This is lifelong work. We will never be free of it. I don't call myself anti-racist. I don't call myself an ally. I don't call myself the choir, even though I've been doing this and leading on this for, for decades. Because the moment I see myself that way and the last... Um, chapter or second to last chapter is going to be a great example <laughs> of, you know, what happened when I kind of relaxed into com complacency and thought, you know, I was the one that only was to teach, not to, you know, pay attention to my own uh, engagement. And I made a big mess. Right. So one of the ironic points that happens when they take me aside to say, I'm preaching to the choir is the is the people of color take me aside and say, dear God, help us with these white people. I mean, they're usually who brought me in. So it's not the same message I get from the people of color in that organization. And I show a checklist of just some of the, just some of the basic things that would indicate a white person has a pretty strong, not just an understanding of racism, but internalized practice uh, of anti-racism. And I don't think most people who see themselves as a choir can check everything off that list. I can't check everything off that list. So you say, I demonstrate knowledge and awareness of racism. I continually educate myself about racism and the perspectives of BIPOC people. I hold awareness of my whiteness in all settings and that awareness guides how I engage. I mean, those three right there are <laughs> yeah. huge mountains to climb. I am involved in anti-racist projects and programs. I raise issues about racism over and over, both in public and private. And it, go, and it goes on. And by the way, it's framed in the eye, but this isn't my list. As I said, I can't check all these off at all times. Um, so there, as, as I say, there really is no choir in the sense that, you know, this group already has it down. To go back to the notion that, you know, a white person comes to you and says, you're preaching to the choir. Meanwhile, you know you are there because the Black people in the organization who are the ones who brought you in are saying, you know, please talk to these folks. And some of the things, some of the things that Black folks complain about, BIPOC folks complain about, 
talking over and silencing BIPOC people in meetings, ignoring or taking credit for their ideas, leaving BIPOC people out of information loops, um, assuming BIPOC people are inherently unqualified, diversity hires. There is one, yeah, this talking over and silencing BIPOC people in meetings. And when I read that, I thought of this, this situation at the paper on the elevator. A motorcade had shown up. Um, a head of state was visiting. I know this because I was in that meeting. It was the, pre I believe, if I remember right, it was the president of Mexico. Mm. And we're all on the elevator, about five of us, including one black woman. And everyone on the elevator is asking, oh, so who is that? Who could that be? And I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to get into it. The black woman says, it's the president of Mexico. The other white people on the elevator still kept going, but who, so who is it? Who, I wonder who it is. And she said, it's the president of Mexico. I saw the flag on the car. And they're still going on. And so she, if I remember right, she forcefully said, it's the president of Mexico. But in that moment, here's this black woman with this knowledge who's in this tiny space. And she was still talked over. Yeah. Still talked over, ignored. Yeah. And can you imagine if you, boy, um, or me uh, called attention to it? What would have happened in an elevator if somebody said, hey, I'm just noticing that this, this woman here has said several times who it is and you're not hearing her? Um, right? So <laughs> implicit bias. I mean, that's what's at play. And this is the other thing that so many white people don't understand. They're not consciously, intentionally ignoring her. You know, in some ways, though, that, that's irrelevant to the impact that they're ignoring her. Um, mm -hmm. And so until we can you know, work more deeply on those implicit biases, then what we can do is be open when somebody calls our attention to the fact that we've done it. But I'm pretty sure nobody would have acknowledged that that happened. Right? That's the gaslighting. Suddenly she becomes aggressive. What, you know, well, geez, I didn't hear you. Right. Even though you, you heard perfectly well the whole thing as a bystander. Mm -hmm. Now that I think of it, I mean, I'm, you talk about when it comes to white people, the silence in those situations yes. only serves to perpetuate racism. And now here I'm thinking, well, why didn't you say something? On top of it, if you had said something, I, the defense, I mean, unfortunately, this, I'm not saying don't say anything. I mean, you, you have to navigate this stuff in whatever way is um, healthiest for you. Um, but that would have amplified their defensiveness. Not only was it a black woman who we ignored, but a bla another black person is telling us that we did it. And that, that would likely have been unbearable for their identity. And so mm. they would have had to, you know, recreate that, reframe that, deny that. So one of the things, one of the reasons you say white people don't challenge in the way, in the elevator example that I gave, or just about in any example that you could possibly think of is because of quote unquote niceness. <laughs> Talk about niceness and its role in perpetuating uh, racism. Yeah, and let me be really clear. I'm all for niceness, right? I mean, I don't, I, I don't like mean people, and, and don't, please don't. Um, I don't want anyone to misunderstand that. My point is that niceness as a response to racism 
is problematic or a culture of niceness being perceived as an indication that racism is absence, absent, right? There's no racism here. We're all so nice. That is what is problematic because a culture of niceness, and let's face it, nice from the perspective of white people, right, is a conflict avoidant and therefore often passive aggressive culture where any feelings of discomfort, which of course, if we're gonna have an honest conversation about race, there will be feelings of discomfort for white people, um, but that will be perceived as a breach in the social contract, right? And, and so we'll just smile. I smile at you when I pass your, your desk. So, you know, everything's fine. And, and sometimes that smile to your face, there's still a knife in your back. And again, as I was reading that chapter, I kept thinking about the white woman, I believe it was in San Francisco, who confronted the, um, it was a man, a man of color, who was, I think in chalk, putting like Black Lives Matter and stuff like that on his own property. And then she comes up with this big smile and this niceness, like, I'm sorry, do you live here? Oh, yeah. It, it, I don't know if you remember seeing yeah. that video, but just everything about that, uh, uh, about that interaction to me was even more scary than watching the tiki torches yeah. in Charlottesville um, the, the night before they ended up murdering Heather Heyer. Um, that though that person is someone I am more likely to have an interaction with than anybody marching on Charlottesville. Yes. And, and again, you know how to protect yourself from those marching in Charlottesville. Um, it, it's right there. It's explicit. It, it's up front. Another incident was the Airbnb incident where some black people were leaving an Airbnb. Mm. The neighbor waved and smiled and they didn't smile back. And she called the police. So there's also a chapter in that book called We're Not Actually That Nice. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just scratch on the surface. Uh, and uh, it gets nasty. You know, I have a friend, Erin um, uh, Trent Johnson, a, a black woman I often co-lead with, and she calls it nasty nice. Mm -hmm. And that's that's how I perceive it, the way you describe that white woman who's asking what they're doing. Just Just under it is kind of some simmering hostility. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Oh, yeah. And you can, it, it, yes. I mean, just in watching that video, I was just wildly uncomfortable because, yeah, she's smiling and her voice is so sweet. But in, but the way it hits me is, wow, this is one mean person 
-hmm. this person is not someone I want to be dealing with. Um, the idea, the nerve of you in front of my own home, you're going to challenge me and then lie. She yeah. lies and says she knows the person who owns the apartment. And the guy's like, uh, oh. go right ahead and call, call, call the police. Actually, he called the police, I think. Yeah. Um, you, on the niceness thing, you also write about over-smiling. And, and one, what is over-smiling? And what message does it send? It's making a point. Like, I need you to see me smiling. I, when I go to the grocery store, I don't know how you do it, but mostly you just ignore other people and you do your thing. Sometimes if you briefly make eye contact with someone, you might give a little smile. But this is like, I have to make a point here of my smiling because I need you to know I'm not racist and I need that for my own validation. So a dear friend of mine who I, who I quote, uh, throughout the book, Anika Naila came home one day shopping at Whole Foods um, and, and said to me, oh, my God, the, you know, the the over smiling, the niceness. And she said, I just want to get my groceries done. And it feels like all these white people need me to validate their goodness. Um, so that that leads to another kind of other other side I want to make, because, because your mm -hmm. listeners may be your white listeners right now may be really open and they're thinking I would never act like that lady did in the, in the driveway. Uh, but we can, there's another version of something we do, right? Like I don't believe in any way I have hostility close to the surface. I mean, it's in there. I was raised in this society. I've internalized anti-blackness like everybody else in this society, but I don't identify with that woman and I wouldn't have called the police, but we can, we can do something else. And let me know if this resonates. I feel so bad about what I said to you. I'm in the elevator and I feel so terrible when you when you call that out that now I need you to forgive me. And so I I'm like please tell me you still love me. Please tell me I'm good. Please please you know let me know that we're okay. Uh, I call that sticky sticky guilt kind of like I, I need you to absolve me because I can't bear that I've hurt you. Um, which functions to say, you don't get to have your feelings right now. You now, in addition to what I did to you, have to take care of me. Mm. Have you ever had um, interaction like that? Um, not that I can think of offhand, but I have seen that. Okay. Uh, there's a, a situation at a television station where a white reporter said something that was, you know, horribly wrong. And she apologized to the black anchor but then she starts crying. Yeah. You have a whole chapter in White Fragility about white tears, white women's tears. And then he ends up having to comfort her for the offense she caused him. Yeah. Yes. And that's a good example. Like she's not denying that she caused harm. And, you know, there may be, again, people listening who are like, well, I wouldn't do that either. Great. I, I'm just identifying common patterns. Um, odds are somewhere you'll recognize them, something in yourself, if you are white and reading this book, who I, I hope you are. <laughs> and that's my intended audience. Um, but it might help you make sense when you see it from somebody else. Right. Like I might have watched that interaction and, and not understood what was problematic about her tears. But now that I do, I could take her aside and talk to her, you know, in, you know, kind of let, hey, can I offer you some some, you know, a hopefully helpful feedback about about what happened? You have um, um, this chapter, the moves of white progressives. 
and there are various things that white progressives do. The first one you talk about is credentialing. And you mentioned that earlier. And so I want you to talk about what is credentialing and then talk about the other moves of white progressives, the things that they do to try to make um, try to make me yeah. <laughs> think that they're not racist. Well, um, credentialing is all the ways we seek to credential or certify ourselves as not racist. Um, a, a progressive white person is less likely to do it through colorblind narratives. We, we, those are kind of old fashioned. We're not going to say we don't see color, um, but we'll, we'll do it by going the other, the other way. Um, we've already talked about a few. My best friend is black. I had a black roommate in college. Oh, look at my biracial nieces and nephews. Um, credentialing, um, Oh, I've, I've read this book. It was fantastic. I've got to go now. I, I have to get into my uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates book study group. Uh, I'll see you next week. Um, oh, um, um, traveling. Yes. Uh, my travels, the languages I speak. Um, I have one called Making Sure Everybody Knows You're Married to a Black Man. Um, that's kind of a, a sensitive one. Um, and of course, white women who are married to black men have a potentially rich source of insight. Um, or I should say any white person partnered with a, with a mm-hmm. black person. Uh, but it's how, when and why we're sharing that. If that's just what you're walking around announcing right away to make sure everybody knows you're not racist. Well, then that's why I say potential rich source of insight, because that's a really sensitive issue. And particularly for uh, black women, white women married to black men is a sensitive issue because the standard of ideal beauty is white womanhood. And that I'm not saying all black women feel that way, but some have some feelings or watching white people raise black children. Those things can bring up a lot of feelings and Mm -hmm. um, about the way society is set up. And so if you're not in tune to that, if you just make, you know, the first thing out of your mouth is an announcement of your credentials in those ways, it's really insensitive. You open the book. <laughs> the ultimate credentialing. Oh God, I cringe story. That. Yes. And it's your and it's your own story. Mm-hmm. So it, it has um the weight of authentic incredible authenticity. Please tell that story. Oh, it was um years ago when I was in college and it, I was a non-traditional student, so I was in my 30s. Right? Um and my partner at the time and I were visiting in San Francisco and there was this couple that were friends of hers. And so, you know, let's let's meet this my, my friends for dinner. I didn't know them. We got to the restaurant, they were already there seated at the table and I saw that they were both black. And I was immediately excited. Right. Like, oh, my God, they're black. Right. I, I don't know any black people. I, I was rarely around black people, uh, as with most white people. Um, and I just felt this instant urge, need to establish I wasn't racist. So how did I do that? I spent the whole evening regaling them with stories of how racist my family was. I told them, uh, you know, every comment I could remember, every joke followed by, can you believe they said that? Can you believe they think that? My point was, see, I know how ignorant that is and I would never say those things. Um, They got, they appeared to me to be getting more and more uncomfortable, but my urgency overrode my paying attention to those signals. Um, And I left that dinner thinking, you know, I'd shown them how down I was. 
what I had done was subject them to racism the entire night. I can't imagine what an unpleasant dinner that was for them. Um, I objectified them by immediately bringing the conversation to race. Do you think I would have brought the conversation to race if they were white? Of course not. And um, especially at that time in the cultural moment, uh, that wasn't lost on them. I put them in a position of, do they just fricking deal with this? Do they say something and risk a white fragility meltdown? And I can tell you at that time, that's what they would have gotten if they had tried to call me in. Um, and maybe the last piece is that while my partner didn't participate, she also never interrupted it. And that's another, you know, um, way that we play a part. She was still complicit with it. Right. That's the si the silencing that I meant. Yes. The silence, not silencing, yeah. the silence um, that per that perpetuates the racism. I have to ask you because after the murder of George Floyd, and everyone ran for every book they could possibly get to understand race and racism. And a lot of people ran to white fragility. I don't know. Luckily, I suppose I got to you before that moment and had been telling everyone under the sun, please read this book. In fact, I think one piece I wrote after the murder of George Floyd was, dear white people, please read white yeah. fragility. But then came the backlash. Yeah. Then came the, the you know, who does she think she is? And yep. she's generalizing and she, I would love your response to the people who criticize you for writing a book to white people about racism. Yeah, um, I expect it from the right. And so I'm not gonna necessarily speak back to that. You know, there are, yeah, we can see where we are right now with, with the way they're using critical race theories that, you know, they are in denial that systemic racism exists. The backlash that I think you're speaking is came from the left and it came from some some black folks. Um, on the one hand, I understand a, a, a sense of resentment. Like we've been saying this for decades, if not centuries and not listened to. And now she says it and she's listened to. And this is something I a dilemma, a tension, if you will, that I've had to deal with throughout my 25 years of doing this work, that in order to decenter whiteness, you have to make it visible. You have to expose it, lay it bare, uh, give white people no escape valve, right? A lot of what I do is like, you're not gonna be able to deny this as easily from me because you know and I know, we know, come on, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, let's let's do it. So you, you you have to center it to decenter it. And it's a both end that I, I've come to terms with because there's no way out at this point. We're all in it. Um, I make my living from anti-racist education. Um, I wish everybody did make their living from some form of anti-racism. If, if, you, you know, if you weren't infusing an anti-racist framework into your work, you wouldn't be seen as qualified, that would be a wonderful revolutionary <laughs> uh, change. Um, and, and so some people have seen me as, um, I think it's because they don't know my past, my background. They think maybe I just kind of jumped out when George Floyd was murdered and thought mm -hmm. I know a good way to make money, which is kind of a devastating to me because I've been doing this long before it was fashionable. I've been taking hits. <laughs> I've been giving my time and my work away uh, for free for, for gener you know, decades. 
Um, and I, I think it's really important that an insider speak to this. I'm really clear that white people will never understand racism if we don't listen to black people. And that you understand it to a degree that I never will because you had to understand it your whole life. And I could be seen as qualified to do or lead anything with no understanding of your reality. And let's be honest, no interest in understanding your reality, mm -hmm. right? Um, so yes, we must listen to black people. And I have a piece of the puzzle you don't have. And for far too long, we've been missing from the table as if racism occurs in a vacuum. Oh, let me just observe you and learn how you experience the world, how sad. You know, it's like you're, you're experiencing it from me. Um, so I think it's an important piece. And um, one thing I've definitely had reinforced for me over this last year is no one can get, get it right by everybody on this topic. It's too charged. The investments are too deep, both to protect white supremacy and to challenge white supremacy. You know, the investment in those positions are deep and people have incredibly strong feelings. I do think the less loud voices are the, are the emails I get every single day from people thanking me <laughs> from across the spectrum and I just have to keep a perspective. Talking about racism, dealing with racism is tough. Did you, and as you say, you've been doing this for 25 years. You've been walking through this minefield for 25 years. <laughs> Did you expect, were you surprised by the backlash that you got? Um, only from the left. I, I was. I, I, in some ways, I'm just going to admit my naivete. You think you think I would have expected it, but I, I've never been. I've never been this visible in the work either. And you know, when you add this uh, social media. Uh, Sometimes I just think about Dr. Fauci and I'm like, okay, well, what I've gotten doesn't compare to what he's gotten. So um, <laughs> there really isn't anybody out there who could be visible today who will not get criticism. And so you just have to be clear in your own integrity, you know, that um, and have your, your forms of accountability and stay with them. You know, this idea that it's a zero sum game and if you read my book, you won't read book books by black people. That's just not true. Over the last five years, 32 books um, about race have been on the New York Times bestseller list. And of those 32, only three have been written by white people. One of them mm. by me. That means 29 bestselling books over five years um, on race have been written by black people. And a couple of them have been on that list much longer than mine. Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow, um, right. uh, Stevenson's um, Just Mercy. So it's just simply not true that my voice is drowning out black voices. Uh, if you're listening and paying attention to me, you know darn well you've got to be listening to black people. I, I just want to open you up so that you do that. I'm going to close by asking you to explain this, because this is also something that comes up at the, the very beginning of your book, where you say, and I, I was trying to find it in the book and I can't find it, but you say something like, as for, as for me, you try to be, quote, less white. <laughs> explain that. I don't think that the answer to racism for white people is reclaiming our ethnic roots, right? 
Um, I know there are some people who have that approach that white people have to see what we've lost by giving up those roots and by by kind of assimilating into whiteness. My goal is to be less white. And what I mean by that is the ways in which whiteness is oppressive, um, the aspects of my white identity um, that are problematic, the ignorance, the arrogance in that ignorance, the lack of humility, right? Um, the segregation. Those are aspects of white being white that I would like to <laughs> minimize um, and, and have more humility, um, more education, um, a more integrated life, more accountability, um, more responsibility, th those, those aspects. So that's what I mean. When I say I want to be less white, I don't mean I want to be more Italian. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I want to be less oppressive. There is no true white race in that sense, right? It's, it's, it's a category and um, a process of socialization that is oppressive. I have one more question. <laughs> um, and that is, you, 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 write, you write in the book that, and you make it clear, and I hope it, it, it is clear in this conversation that you can't just read your book or any book and you are done. Um, you've got all the knowledge and now you can walk through life um, being either not racist or anti-racist. You make the point of saying, this is a 24 seven, 365 day a year endeavor. You are never because of this, the systemic nature of this and the acculturation of this, you are never going to vanquish racism. And so for the person who hears that and thinks, oh my God, this is so monumental. Why should I even bother? Why should they bother? Oh, well, let me give a plug for Heather McGee's book, um, The Sum of Us, uh, where she makes a beautiful yes. case for why you should bother. Jonathan Metzl, Dying of Whiteness. Um, yep. A friend, Debbie Irvin, is working on a book called Whiteness is Not Your Friend. <laughs> uh, so, so we lose a great deal. Um, yes, it is um, hard and painful uh, at times. It is also the most exhilarating, um, exciting, um, deeply moving, beautiful journey you could ever be on. There's just nothing that has pushed my my. Uh, limits, <laughs> um, that has deepened my awareness, that has changed my life, that has built relationships I would not have had. You know, most white people go cradle to grave with no relationships with black people and no sense of loss, no sense that anything of value has been lost in a segregated life. And if we're being honest, that we, we measure the value of our lives by the absence of black people. I know what a good school is. I know what a good neighborhood is. I know what we're talking about when we're shocked that a crime happened here, right? That's the deepest message of all of white supremacy. And it's not the really blatant, clear stuff. Um, I don't want that inside of me. <laughs> uh, it is there. Um, and it, it's a beautiful, you know, hard, painful journey uh, to seek to change it, but we have to do it for our healing, not to help you, 
right? Um, when I speak up against racism and I'm pushing through all my own internalized inferiority as a, as a woman who was raised poor, all the messages that my voice isn't important. I mean, I have those as well as your voice is more important as a white person. You know, this is the concept of intersectionality. I just haven't found a more healing project than centering racism. I highly recommend it. <laughs> Robin D'Angelo, author of the new book, Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm. Thanks so much. So great to see you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.